This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, Hawke's Bay's community access radio station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air. Welcome, this is Elizabeth Conrad, and you're listening to Hold That Thought, a show about psychology, the profession, the people, the myths, and the legends. So before we start, as always, quick disclaimer, this show is representative of my views only, so I don't represent the views of any clinic, organization, medical practice, or local hippie food collective, although rock on, fresh garlic is amazing. Also, this show is not meant to service therapy or treatment in any capacity, so if you find that you're struggling or you need support, please contact your local GP or call the Mental Health Emergency Line at 0800-112-334. Okay, to kick it off, um, today's episode is all about that lovely buzzword that we hear about, self-care. What is self-care, like actually self-care? So, in preparing for today's episode, just for kicks, I decided to Google self-care and see what came up. And I obviously came across all sorts of definitions, many different approaches, lots of advertisements for self-care in today's world. Some were pretty generic, you know, basic self-care. Some were really helpful. Some were actually kind of funny and not helpful, and some were just downright frustrating. So I'm going to talk about what self-care means and why, for the most part, we know about it, but we still avoid it. So in the very basic sense, self-care is, I mean, as we know, is pretty much any kind of self-driven activity or action, whatever, meant to promote one's well-being. And that's, that's a simple definition, things that we do for ourselves to take care of ourselves. So whether it be towards our health or managing an illness, uh, it may or may not involve a healthcare provider. Some definitions that I came across on Google said self-care doesn't involve any other kind of provider input. And I think I think that's baloney. I think when we really need to take care of ourselves, it's important to get other people involved. Um. I think most of us came across the term self-care, particularly during lockdown. I don't know if if any of you experienced this, but I was smacked across the face in pretty much every social media post for six weeks straight about how to mentally look after myself. And I remember seeing advice on how to care for something green or clean something new every day or make a phone call or learn something new. And for some reason, many of us found that these recommended activities were actually really, really hard to do, even though we were suddenly left with extra time on our hands. Now, the caveat, of course, some of us as you know, being essential workers were not left with extra time. So a shout out to the essential workers during lockdown. But lockdown was not easy for anyone. And it seemed to become even harder to take care of ourselves during lockdown, despite this expectation that we could suddenly better ourselves and focus inward now that we had this opportunity to kind of take things a little bit more slowly. A lot of people that I worked with, 
myself, my close friends, even my parents really talked to me about a certain kind of malaise that took over their lives after a while. And everything just became eh, blah. And ironically, at the same time of this malaise and isolation, there was this added pressure to learn a new language or bake something healthy every day or write our memoir or become a peace guru. So why was self-care so hard then? Why is it so hard now? What What is it all about? So first of all, as with any approach to healing, there's no one path or one strategy. Of course, there's no one approach that's going to work for everyone. And in fact, it's pretty important to consider just how unique self-care has to be from person to person. This is pretty obvious. But I, I think sometimes we forget about that, especially when looking for a way to better ourselves. It's easy to find a quick generic approach. So even if there are basic tenets to follow around self-care, taking you know action on our healing, it's important to remember that it's all individualized. So for example, in my Googling, I came across an article by Psychology Today, presumably written by an, another psychologist. I should have looked it up. But Psychology Today outlining 12 ways to take better care of yourself. The first recommended step towards self-care was getting a self-care program with good sleep in it. So setting up a good sleep space, making sure that you have a consistent sleep routine, blah, 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 sufficient time for complete rest. And it's a great recommendation, right? Sleep is important. But what about someone who struggles with depression or chronic fatigue? Or I mean, what the heck? What if they're just new parents? Sleep can become this oppressive, overwhelming aspect of life, or even just a way to withdraw and actually escape from a painful state of being. So the idea around getting sleep has to be individualized. So another example, taking care of your gut. That's important in self, self-care, right? I, I cannot argue, of course, it's important to take care of your, your gut, but this, you know, this too comes with some words of caution. So again, another example, some people who are like hyper-focused on their health or their weight, they worry about, about gut health almost religiously, um, or worse, they go through these series of fads, basically when they're taking on self-care that in some ways are really meant to mask underlying physical or mental issues that might uh, need to be addressed. So same thing goes for exercise. So I found this in my work, particularly with really, really high achievers. So people who, you know, very high powered men or women, they have this, um, they have their lives in a, in a great routine, very active families, they're regular exercise, you know, enthusiasts. And for, for sometimes these high achievers exercise actually serves while you know, while on the one hand, it serves as a really fantastic physical output that really takes the edge off, it can sometimes go over the edge and it can become a replacement for other ways to manage anxiety or mood or tension. And ironically, sometimes a strict exercise regimen can actually make all of those things worse. So the pressure to exercise can be, you know, something that directly takes away 
from other aspects of self-care that might be more beneficial for that particular person, like self-reflection or meditation, or even just taking the time to connect with others, just slowing down. So now I do have to, you know, the gym is a fantastic place to get a lot done, release a lot of toxins, get those endorphins going. But there are other ways that we need to learn how to let our steam out. And sometimes that actually involves facing our own steam a little bit. Sometimes exercise distracts from that. So going back to that Psychology Today article, one of the other recommendations, and then I'll kind of move on, but another recommendation from the Psychology Today article was to let a pet help you. Sweet, sweet. But you guys, I'm I'm a dog lover. At almost 40 years old, I have gone a total of eight years of my life without a pet, and six of those were from zero to six. And the other two are very recently, and not by choice. <laughs> so pets are amazing. I'm all about dogs or, or cats or whatever, whatever is your your animal of choice. Little pig, doesn't matter. One thing I've seen time and again is that people will get a little puppy. Or they'll, they'll adopt a dog thinking that the dog is going to be a motivating factor for health and exercise. And it does happen every now and then. But let's be real. For all of us, we are who we are before we have pets. And that doesn't change once we have a dog on board. Instead, it often just becomes another obligation that takes away from our self-care, requires attention. So if we don't have the motivation to get ourselves outside before those sweet little puppy eyes really won't make you get out and go for a run. Really just get outside unless the puppy's got to pee. So last one that was recommended by Psychology Today is scheduling time for self-care and for guarding that time with a vengeance. And I would totally agree. Again, depending on the person and what it is that they actually need. So for example, For some people, ordering a pizza, watching Netflix is a great way to decompress after a busy week, especially for people who have a super fast-paced lifestyle, who could use a break from the constant focus on salads and quinoa. But for others, Netflix is a fantastic way to avoid and withdraw from the world. So again, we saw this with the pandemic. It was kind of a tool that exploded. Once we're all locked away in our homes, we had Netflix. And in some ways, It actually helped us isolate further and further away into this world of fantasy. So to sum it up, all in all, sometimes self-care is taking the time to do things that are restful and enjoyable and recharging, but it's, it's really based on your individual need. Sometimes when it crosses the line into withdrawal or isolation or excessive distraction, then self-care is something, it becomes the opposite of self-care, really. It takes us away from our health and well-being, and really further away from ourselves. One thing in my search for self-care, and I don't hear too often about it when we talk about self-care, it's not really emphasized so much, is actually setting aside time for things that we don't want to do, like cleaning the bathroom. And it's an important piece of self-care, actually, is getting through some of the things that we don't want to do. Sometimes cleaning the clutter out of our heads really means taking a look around at our living space and recognizing that it's a part of our lives as well. So, I mean, have you ever gone to a really nice hotel and you just totally sink into the enjoyment of nice and clean, crisp sheets, a really tidy little kitchen, a clean bathroom? Part of it is we're removed from the clutter 
of our own lives. Our own clutter is out of view. I have some people very close to me, friend, a few friends, some family who are super cluttered people. I'm not a super neat freak. My husband would disagree, but I'm really, I'm not a super, super neat freak. I'm generally tidy. And I often find myself wondering, what is it like to live in really intense clutter? I'm not talking about a little mess here and there, or, you know, laundry to be folded or, you know, things that have to be tidied up. I mean, really being surrounded chronically by clutter. Does it just represent this mountainous task that has to be dealt with one day? Because to me, it seems exhausting. And it really just seems to kind of serve as like a literal sitting pile of reminders of one day having to deal with it. So even though sometimes there's stuff that we don't want to do, that's an important part of self-care too. Cleaning up is actually taking care of ourselves. Sometimes also, you know, another aspect of that cleanup or clutter in in self-care isn't just cleaning up our space, it's cleaning up our relationships. Self-care that's often the most challenging to actually take on is involving confrontation. So this could mean coming to a colleague or a friend or a loved one or a boss in order to advocate for ourselves. I was joking the other day with a Kiwi colleague of mine. I was down in Wellington, and this is a group of psychologists, always interesting when we get together. It's not really that interesting, but it it sounds like it could be. And I was talking to a woman from Finland, and she turned to the only Kiwi psychologist we had at the table and said, so I have a question. How do Kiwis actually deal with confrontation? Like, how do they ever eventually get there? Because as a person from Finland, and I've seen this as well, and South Africans that I've worked with have noticed this as well, is that um, our cultures are a little bit more confrontational, a little bit more direct, whereas Kiwis tend to be a little less confrontational. I sort of stepped in and joked, and I was like, Kiwis take it out on the road. But (laughs) I don't know if that's... Anyway, seriously, Americans are shockingly confrontational compared to Kiwis in every other way. But the the road rage, it's it's interesting. Um, so basically, anomaly for another day, Kiwi road rage, I digress. It's sometimes a way to rally for ourselves, having to confront another friend, colleague, whatever, in an uncomfortable conversation where we basically have to get our needs met. Putting it out there, what is your self-care? Basically, what are the ways that you know you need to promote your health or your sense of wholeness or just your general sense of well-being or safety or peace? And it can help to take a look at the physical, the emotional, obviously like the mental, the spiritual, and also the social aspects of your life. So what areas have you been using a quick fix for? What is it that you know you need and you have to give yourself both the grace and the time to do and what's hard about it? I know for me lately, I'll give an example. I have been feeling isolated from my family because of COVID and I get it. We need to keep the country safe from COVID and truly we have enjoyed some amazing privileges as a result of such tight controls. And at the same time, I ha- I'm sort of sitting with the reality of the other end of it. My parents haven't met my first kiddo yet. I have no immediate prospect of returning to the U.S. and being able to see my family because I might not be able to get back home to New Zealand. So I think to deal with some of my isolation, 
I've, you know, felt this social distance and I want to say, okay, self-care, how do I get more connected? And in a lazy kind of way, I have popped up on Facebook way more than I usually do or would have in the past. I'm going to admit, I scroll through it when I first wake up. I scroll through it before I go to bed. Sometimes I look at it on my lunch hour and let's be real, just like everyone else in the bathroom. Too much information, but truth. So if I was being honest with myself, I could be on Facebook anywhere from 15, 30 minutes a day to upwards of an hour or an hour and a half on a bad day. And yet it serves no actual purpose in making me feel more connected to anyone. It doesn't make me feel better. It doesn't bring my family closer. It doesn't put them in the house next door to me. Will I actually come across some story or news or piece of juicy gossip that's going to open up the borders or even just make me feel closer to other people around me? Nah. And even with all the little hearts and all the little care buttons that I get on my occasional posts about my mountain hikes or messy kid, I don't actually get a general sense of major life updates or enjoyment from this activity from people I don't see every day. It actually does nothing to make me feel like I have more friends, doesn't make me feel like I have a life purpose. So that's just kind of one example where we can default into a kind of self-care. Oh, I'm just going to decompress for a minute, take a look at Facebook. But it actually is distracting me from that feeling of isolation that I kind of have to sit with and deal with a little bit, not being able to, to see my family. So it's doing something like that. Facebook is doing exactly what it's designed to do. It's distracting me. It is great at it. And crappy self-care does that or, you know, bad version of self-care. It's a distraction. So that brings me to my next point. Self-care, why do we avoid it? Now, I have not studied this in depth, but from my work and studies, I have come up with three hypotheses or three theories. I don't know if it's hypotheses or theories. I'm not a scientist. That's why I'm not a real doctor. But I've narrowed it down to three thoughts about why we avoid self-care. So the first hypothesis, self-care, it does nothing for our identity. True self-care is nurturing the soul beyond what we think others perceive. So if we go back to that very first example of working out, if we actually engage in a workout regimen that gets our heart rate up, it gets endorphins going, and it's a healthy amount of workout time, it's not going to result in a drastic amount of weight loss in the short term. Nobody's going to notice. We're going to notice in terms of our mood, but that takes time. It really does nothing as far as this vast overhaul of what other people might notice in terms of caring for ourselves. It's actually investing in us in ways that nobody else is going to notice, nobody else is going to see, nobody else might even care about. Over time, sure, other people start might start to notice gradual things. Oh, you've been losing some weight or oh, you seem more relaxed and you seem more happy, but it's not going to happen overnight. The distraction kind of self-care, that is a quicker quote-unquote fix, but it doesn't actually get anywhere in terms of pushing us farther to who we really are. The second hypothesis around why we just avoid actual self-care is that culturally, it's not really valued. I don't know if other people have felt this as much lately, but from what I'm hearing from clients and, and people close to me and myself, it just, there is this 
insidious undercurrent. It's growing and it's spreading. And it's stronger in the U.S., but I've noticed it here in New Zealand now that I've been here for a little bit. There is this undercurrent that working oneself to the bone is kind of a point of pride rather than taking it easy. So it's almost as though we're on this wave of if you work hard, you're going to get there. And when you work hard, that means you really work. You work until you can't work anymore. You work until there's not really nothing else to do. And you push yourself and that's how you achieve and that's how you succeed. And and on the dark side of that is that people who ha- who struggle, people who are making minimum wage jobs and who can't rise up the social ladder, there's the assumption, oh, they're not working themselves to the bone. So there's almost this like cultural push and it's reinforced in movies and advertising that the harder we push, the more we're going to achieve, the better life is going to be. And that's its own kind of self-care, obviously not the healthy kind. So that's sort of my second theory as to why culturally, mm, it's not really a thing. Self-care, you know, it's not like, oh, how cool of you that you took all this time to meditate. Mm, That's really neat. But oh, man, you worked 60 hours last week. Wow, that's mm, good on you. So the the yeah so the third thought around self-care as far as why we tend to avoid it is and this is where again the psychologist comes in with feelings it involves facing ourselves and maybe in actual self-care some uncomfortable stuff is going to come up so if we sit with things that we don't want to be distracted from if i go back to my example of recognizing that I can't see my family uh, anytime soon. And I have to kind of sit with that, whether it be journaling about it or not distracting myself from those thoughts through delightful food or running 10 miles, which I can't do, but if I could, you know, as an option, a distraction, some uncomfortable stuff might come up for me. And I might just have to have a moment or two of kind of sitting with the reality of what, what it is to be separated from my family as an example. So true self-care might involve facing stuff that we don't want to face when we get rid of the distractions and when we have that quiet. What happens when we don't take care of ourselves? And this is the last thing I'm going to touch on really quickly. I think the biggest outcome that I've observed is that ironically, when we don't take care of ourselves, I've found that people end up resenting the people around them for not taking care of them. This isn't true of everybody, but I've heard this time and again. I've even noticed it in myself. I've seen it in my family members. I mean, in my own marriage, you know, I work 45 hours a week or whatever. As an, I don't, but if I did and I got really, really exhausted and did all this stuff, wasn't taking care of myself, it's so much easier to say, oh, geez, husband, man, why didn't you do this? You know, why didn't you take care of this? Or why didn't you recognize that I was tired? Or why can't you take over from me here? And I've seen that with people who they feel that their spouses should be doing more, or they feel that their friends should have recognized something. Or it's almost as though when we don't take care of ourselves, we project that responsibility in other people to take care of us. And that's never comfortable. That's never helpful. So Sometimes when we don't take care of ourselves, we get physically worn down to the point where we have to. And then we, we then we have the excuse, basically, that we've worked ourselves to the bone. We, we've gone to the breaking point. 
And we don't have a choice. We have to slow down. We get sick. We have a mental difficulty. And the problem is that when we get to this point, this takes away our choice. And in some ways, that kind of goes back to that cultural identity piece. It's easier for us to say, oh, I've worked myself too hard. So now I have to slow down. So some things to think about. Self-care. How often do you engage in it? What are ways that are healthy for you, even if it doesn't always involve doing things that you want? Basically, it's got to be individual for you. It has to be meaningful. It has to take some time. Sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes it's not. And again, right as we get into the thick of what it really means, right when we're getting to the point, our time is up. So I will see you next session and have a good week. Take care of yourselves. This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, Hawke's Bay's community access radio station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air.